From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. And I'm Brooke Gladstone. What a week it's been. So full of farce and deceit and downright lunacy. You'd think the moon was closer and brighter and more disorienting than it's been all year. But the fact is, the supermoon comes Sunday, so even heaven can't help us. I will tell you this in a non-braggadocious way. There has never been a 10-month president that has accomplished what we have accomplished. That I can tell you. It's true. By bombarding the nation with such a ceaseless and accelerating volume of crazy, Donald J. Trump has actually slowed down time. Never has 10 months passed so slowly. In our office this week, the multiple TV monitors mounted over our heads were filled with stupefaction nigh on to shock as he tweeted graphic anti-Muslim videos by a far-right British hate group and then told the British Prime Minister to mind her own business when she objected and snickered at the leader of North Korea after it tested its most powerful ICBM yet and slammed a political foe with a Native American slur at an event honoring Native American war heroes and revived baseless suspicions about Barack Obama's birthplace and suggested it wasn't his voice on that Access Hollywood video boasting about sexual assault, for which he'd already apologized, while implying that it was NBC's chairman who was guilty of sexual impropriety and MSNBC host Joe Scarborough guilty of murder. Most predictably, he proclaimed that his preferred tax bill would actually hurt the rich, would hurt him, while a New York Times analysis found that his family personally stands to gain a billion bucks from its passage. I think my accountants are going crazy right now. It's all right. Hey, look, I'm president. I don't care. I don't care anymore. But the president's most awe-inspiring accomplishments are trampling on the idea that reality matters, that in fact it has a material impact on the life of every citizen, and marketing the notion that the best of the American press, however imperfect it may be, is not a truth seeker, but just another special interest, an enemy, here, there, and everywhere. Donald Trump tweeted that CNN International was a, quote, major source of fake news and represent our nation to the world very poorly. This is pretty remarkable. This that kind of thing has an impact. After CNN recently released a report on Libyan slave markets, a TV station there used Trump's claims about CNN to cast doubt on the story. Trump, of course, is not alone in his intolerance of reality. On Wednesday at The Hague, a convicted war criminal received the news that his 20-year jail term would be upheld, declared that he wasn't a criminal, and took a swig of poison. He chose death over life in a world that saw the truth of him. Denial itself is a poison, and it's polluted America's ether. Call it special pleading if you will, but take heed when America's president works so tirelessly to sow distrust in our engines of accountability, our data collectors, our research institutions, our best media organizations, and emboldens others to do the same. Consider the case of Senate candidate and accused predator of teenagers, Roy Moore of Alabama. Here he is at a Monday night rally. We've seen malicious and false attacks 
which reflect the immorality of our time. The effort to discredit journalists reporting the story, notably the Washington Post, has been so crude that it seems even the liars don't care. Last week, an Alabama pastor, among many others, received a robocall left by a so-called Post reporter. Hi, this is Arnie Bernstein. I'm a reporter for the Washington Post. Calling to find out if anyone at this address is a female between the ages of 54 to 57 years old willing to make damaging remarks about candidate Roy Moore for a reward of between $5,000 to $7,000. Yeah, uh, this that. is insulting. It is. It's the most anti-Semitic. <laughs> That's the panel on MSNBC's Morning Joe yucking it up. I got a little stain from my matzo ball soup. I mean, Joy <laughs> Obviously, no such person works for the Washington Post, which, by the way, doesn't pay its sources. And then this week... The Washington Post says it was the target of a sting operation apparently run by the conservative activist group Project Veritas. The newspaper confronted a woman who falsely claimed that Alabama Senate nominee Roy Moore impregnated her as a teenager. Turns right. out she was paid by Project Veritas to make this up to try to undermine the Washington Post reporting on the Alabama Senate candidate. Tell us Project more. Veritas is the brainchild of James O'Keefe, notorious for launching sting operations against the voting rights group ACORN, Planned Parenthood, National Public Radio, CNN, and many more, often by going undercover to record and then incriminate them through creative editing. In this case, Project Veritas seemed bent on catching a Washington Post reporter claiming that dirt on more would lead to his defeat. Instead, the Washington Post did a counter sting, tracking the woman to Project Veritas and confronting James O'Keefe. Does Jamie Phillips work for Project Veritas? Did you guys send her to speak to pose as a victim of Roy Moore to the Washington Post? I'm 15 minutes late to this so okay. I gotta, I gotta run, but I will. We will get in touch with you. Okay. Recording the conversation with the accuser, Jamie Phillips. I want him to be completely taken out of the race, mm-hmm. and I really expected that that was gonna happen, mm-hmm. and now it's not. Yeah. Well, um, you know, like I said, that you know, the, the starting point really is to hear your story. So. Yeah, we can take a moment to celebrate that the hoaxers have failed in their mission to undermine journalism. But that mission has wealthy backers, including Donald J. Trump, who in March 2015 donated to Project Veritas. That was before he could do the job himself. For the Washington Post, the decision to counter-sting Jamie Phillips and then write about it was unorthodox. According to Washington Post media columnist Margaret Sullivan, it was also tactical, a way to restore some faith in journalism, particularly among those who think we're all fake news. The Washington Post has been very clear with its readers about how it went about its reporting. In the initial story about Roy Moore, the Post was extremely clear that the women didn't come to us that reporters had heard something about this and gone to the various women and, in essence, convinced them to tell their stories. And this was put in the initial story. It was made very clear that this was the process. And that's kind of an unusual thing to see in a news story. Similarly, BuzzFeed recently was extremely clear about the source 
of its story about Representative John Conyers, that the initial information had come through Mike Cernovich, who's a right-wing provocateur. And scoundrel and liar. He's a creep. And yet, sometimes he's got the goods. The information was worthy, and BuzzFeed protected itself and informed its readers by being very clear about where the information had come from. So I think the more we, and I'm talking about what I call the reality-based press, that's my phrase instead of the uh, (laughs) mainstream media, the reality-based press should do more and more of this so that people can understand how we work. I mean, I don't think that most people understand anonymous sourcing or the difference between an editorial and a news story. So I think we need to explain ourselves better. What does that look like? Well, it looks like taking a paragraph early in an investigative story to say, here's how we did it. It means telling people to the extent you can who your sources are. It means publishing your documentation when you can. It means telling people about your methodology, printing and publishing primary sources. To kind of footnote the journalism as we go about it. As we go along, yes. Now, you mentioned anonymous sources. By definition, you can't explain who they are. And it's very, very easy for Donald Trump and Sean Hannity and various voices from the right to dismiss anything that is based on anonymous sources as fake news just out of hand, since the public doesn't really understand the rigor that is attached in a newsroom to the use of anonymous sources. That's right. And I think that's one of the reasons that when I was the public editor at the New York Times, I really campaigned against the overuse of anonymous sources. In investigative reporting, particularly in the national security area, you sometimes have to use them. There's no other way to get at this information, but the overuse of them begins to really eat away at credibility. So I think they need to be used sparingly. The Times had a written policy that said use anonymous sources only as a last resort. But you'd see very frequently many stories that used anonymous sources, and you'd begin to think, well, gosh, there are a lot of last resorts happening here. Yeah, it's the coin of the realm that is at the heart of just about all political reporting and certainly the palace intrigue stuff coming out of Washington. It's not just investigative stories. It's damn near everything. How can we fix that? Well, I think to sometimes walk away from the story that's only sourced anonymously. And then when anonymous sources are used, to tell people as much as you can about the source without revealing the source pin down who this person is without using their name. And that's a process that you have to work out with the source. And then to give as specific a reason as possible about why they're not able to speak on the record. Now, you happen to be in Alabama, where this whole Roy Moore story is playing out. And in this case, the Post acknowledged that it had sought out the women who made the accusations and explained how it went about corroborating their stories. But this yielded two effects. One, the narrative that it's all invented by the Post. And the other narrative is all the women are lying for partisan political reasons or to somehow make money on the deal and that this innocent man is a victim. Is there anything that transparency of journalism can do to alter the thinking of people 
willing to buy that story. If they're now convinced that this is just a bunch of claims and counterclaims, and in essence, I throw up my hands and say, it's all a bunch of lies. I mean, there's really not much of a way to penetrate that. But for people who are truly interested in trying to figure out what's true and what isn't true, then I think when you're able to say there are multiple named women who have nothing to gain, who have come forward. And who shared their stories contemporaneously with various intimates long before the Post ever knew they existed. If you're just hearing about the story from someone on your Facebook page, maybe you'd think that's not credible. But if you bothered to look into it, I think you would find the Post's reporting credible. When the story broke uh, about how the Post unmasked the would-be unmaskers, Mm -hmm. what was it like in the newsroom? Were people, you know, dancing around, hee-hee-hee, tra-la-la? No, it wasn't like that. There may have been some sense of pride and satisfaction, but hardly dancing around, I, I don't see that at all. Margaret, many thanks. You're very welcome, Bob. Good to chat with you. Margaret Sullivan is the media columnist for The Washington Post. Coming up, dubious data and devious bots infect the net neutrality debate. This is on the media. This is on the media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Bob Garfield. Later this month, the Federal Communications Commission will vote on dismantling the Obama-era regulatory framework known as net neutrality. Essentially, it would allow Internet service providers to charge content providers or consumers higher rates for better, faster service, rather than offering equal access and quality to all. Depending on what news you're reading, the FCC's decision will usher in a new era of innovation, or it will precipitate the death of free and open Internet. The undoing of net neutrality is the Moby Dick of FCC Chairman Ajit Pai. It was Pai's predecessor, Tom Wheeler, who in 2015 spearheaded the FCC's open Internet order that brought us net neutrality and who joins me today. We're also joined by Nick Gillespie, the editor-in-chief of Reason.com. Earlier this week, Nick wrote, quote, The panic over the repeal of net neutrality is misguided for any number of reasons. Tom, Nick, welcome to OTM. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. One of the big arguments against the current regulations is that they do stifle investment and the innovation that comes with it. And the FCC issued a so-called fact sheet claiming that such investment has dropped since the net neutrality regime was enacted. Nick, is it true? The fact of the matter is is that during the era of the commercial internet, there has been massive investment in infrastructure, primarily done by private companies seeking to recoup their investments by offering better, faster, quicker, more innovative services. I think that will continue. The problem is the way that the rules were implemented. They were implemented at the agency level, and it creates, for the same reason that Tom, when he was in charge of the FCC, could turn on a dime and change the policy, because I can do that. And then Ajit Pai, who I tend to agree with in this instance, says, you know what, I don't like that. I'm going to change it back. And within, you know, it's something like five or six times in the past decade, there have been 
flips in policies like this, it creates regulatory uncertainty, which is never good in the long run. And this gets to a larger issue. That is, this type of policy probably should not be decided at the agency level. Congress has abdicated its responsibility to give clear direction including whether or not the FCC actually has the right to be doing what it's saying it's doing. Well, that's an excellent answer, although not necessarily one to the question I asked. On this issue of investments, the FCC claims that they have diminished. The ISPs are telling their shareholders and Wall Street analysts a different story, that infrastructure investments are in the tens of billions of dollars per company and rising Are the FCC smoking gun investment numbers plucked out of context, Tom? Here's what I've learned when I was chairman of the FCC, that there are lobbying statistics and then there are what you have to report to the Securities Exchange Commission and to your shareholders. And they would come in and say, oh, here's how things are being hurt. But then they would go to their shareholders and to Wall Street and say, no, we're not being hurt. The CEO of AT&T talked about how after the open internet rules, they would, quote, deploy more fiber in 2016 than they did in 2015. Comcast has increased their investment. Verizon has increased their investment. The reality is that investments are staying steady. Even the numbers that the Industry Trade Association gave to the FCC show essentially flat numbers, and it's what they've been telling the street that we're going to spend, oh, roughly 15% of revenues on investment. One of the things that needs to be said here, and, and I don't know if Tom can say it because he's, a, he's in a complicated position, you know, ISPs are not our friends. Mobile carriers are not our friends. The government is not our friends. They all have interests that they're going to mask and cloud with, you know, public helper rhetoric. But the fact of the matter is, is that Certain basic ideas should be taken seriously, and one is that if regulations can change willy-nilly on a very regular and yet unpredictable basis, that's generally not good for long-term planning. Nick, you're one of the leading voices, I suppose, in libertarianism, (laughs) which is all about letting free markets take care of business more uh, efficiently than a ham-fisted government can do. I believe in a limited government, and I believe in uh, maximum individual liberty. Thank you. All right. Now, as I like to say, and I I stop people in the street to bother them with this idea, (laughs) one of the things that free markets are free of is conscience. History shows that without regulatory cops on the beat, business will always put profits and shareholder value above all other considerations, especially monopolies. ISPs are either monopolies or de facto monopolies in almost every market where they do business. Okay. Absent regulation, such as net neutrality, why in the world would we trust them not to sell our private information, not to favor their content over competitors' content, not to shake down content providers and their own customers for fast lane service instead of slow lane service? There is competition already. There should be a lot more. None of this is being addressed by net neutrality. And I think that's a much more important discussion to be having. And I suspect Tom and I probably agree more on that. Monopolists have the following two things going for them. One, they have an economic incentive to make the decision that favors them over their customers. 
And more important, they have the technological capability to enforce that decision. And the consumer has no choice if they don't like it. In a non-competitive environment, what you need to establish are a certain set of ground rules. And that was what we did. So, Bob, I think the question comes down to who makes the rules? Even monopolies have to often act as if they are in a competitive market, even if they have 100% market share. Because if Comcast starts doing the stuff that would violate net neutrality, if Comcast says, you know what, we're Comcast, NBC, Universal, we have so much content, we don't want people looking at Netflix, we want our stuff, we're going to degrade or, or even just throttle down and block completely Netflix. What happens then? Do people just sit there and take it? Tom Wheeler, on the FCC fact sheet, it's asserted that ISPs did not and presumably will not charge providers or users for faster service and more bandwidth. But haven't the ISPs themselves said that's exactly what they'll do? Under oath before the court appealing the last open internet rules, the Verizon lawyer said to the court, I have been instructed by my client that I may say that the reason why we are appealing these rules is because we intend to offer prioritized services and different levels of services. They used to say in all of their printed materials that they would never do it. They have guys like Comcast and, and AT&T and others. It is pretty clear that we're headed towards fast lanes and slow lanes. Can I ask, what is the nightmare scenario? What is the how Lindsay, late great planet Earth, apocalypse, the rapture is coming? What is paid prioritization that it would be absolutely verboten under any circumstances? Think about your cable system. If you like your relationship with your cable operator today, you're going to love your relationship with your internet service provider because the cable operator has the ability to pick and choose which services go on, what tiers they go on, and to tell you, oh, you know, you want that channel? You're just going to have to pay me a little more. That's what paid prioritization is about. Will it be a better service? Will it be faster? For instance, say I am a film buff and I want to be able to actually stream very high-quality video, whether it's from Amazon or Netflix or anywhere. And if I'm willing to pay extra money to dedicate part of my pipeline to getting the fastest, best HD, true HD quality, should I not be allowed to do that? I mean, is that a business model? And again, this goes back to my definition of net neutrality, which is that this is about regulating allowable business models for companies, which I tend to be against. In 2007, Comcast blocked BitTorrent delivering licensed Hollywood product over broadband because it competed with their pay TV service. And I go back to the fact that they stood in the well of the courtroom and said, we intend to go out there and differentiate amongst services because we can and we are the ones who will determine who wins and who loses. One of the uh, commissioner's big arguments is that in matters of consumer commerce, the FCC isn't even the right agency 
to do the regulating. If any bad behavior takes place, he says, the matter should go before the Federal Trade Commission. Nick, as someone who's you know not a big fan of regulation of any sort, does that make sense to you? I do think that the Federal Trade Commission can do stuff about anti-competitive behavior, which is not always easy to see or to understand. So hmm. I don't have a problem with that because the idea that the FCC has been some kind of great champion of the little guy is ridiculous. It's powerful interests in Washington, whether they're lobbying groups or whatnot, or they're political entities. That's what dictates stuff. When Comcast starts acting awfully, when Verizon starts acting awfully, when AT&T starts acting awfully, I don't think that you have to worry. The only good power that comes out of stuff is really through consumer choices. The FCC vote is scheduled for December 14th, and it looks like online freakout or no, at this point, ending net neutrality is a done deal, unless, Tom, what? It looks like it'll be a three to two vote. And then what happens next is four to six weeks later, it gets published in the Federal Register. There will undoubtedly be an appeal, and the first test will be, does the court believe that the rule should be stayed, should be stopped from going into effect while the court determines the total legal ramifications? And that will be a nine to 12-month kind of time frame. It is highly unlikely that given the history of the commercialized internet that we have all come to know and love and admire and rely on, that there are going to be these vast, quick U-turns where suddenly you show up and it's like, well, I can't get to that site unless I fork over $50. The long-term trajectory of the internet is towards openness and growth and innovation and new ways of doing things. If most people look at their personal experience with internet connectivity and mobile phone and internet connectivity being able to go through your phone system, it has been getting better and it was getting better before the open internet order. So, but I think Nick... Tom, I'm going to give Nick the last okay. word there. All right. Gentlemen... You're if, the boss. <laughs> tell me about it. <laughs> Gentlemen, uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Bob. Tom Wheeler is former chairman of the Federal Communications Commission. Nick Gillespie is editor-in-chief of Reason.com. For his part, Chairman Ajit Pai has no doubt that ending net neutrality is what's best for the American people. If we go back to the market-based regulation, companies will have more incentive to invest, and entrepreneurs will have a better chance to reach more Americans, and consumers will be much better off. They'll have better, faster, and cheaper internet access. Still, the law says that the American people must have the chance to weigh in through a process called public comment. In 2014, nearly four million comments poured into the FCC, overwhelmingly in support of an internet that offers equal access to all. And this public outcry reportedly helped convince the agency to set the rules that Pi now wants to overturn. So, has public sentiment really shifted so much in the last three years? Unlikely, but according to Issy Lepowski, senior writer for Wired, we can't really know for sure. Because this year, the public comment process was broken by a swarm of bots. The first issue I think that most researchers noted was that there were 22 million comments coming into the FCC. 
millions more than have been received in the entire history of all government agency (laughs) comment periods over time. As you said, the last comment period received about 4 million. That even is an anomaly. So they started looking into the content of these comments, and a lot of them were duplicates, which is not necessarily a problem. You can imagine any advocacy group wants to supply the words for their community so that people can, with one click, let their voice be heard. So the duplicative comments are not necessarily the issue, but combined with some of the automated techniques that these researchers discovered, it creates this cacophony where you don't know what duplicates are are real human beings, just clicking a button, or what comments are automated and generated by bots. And these data scientists found that Only 6% of the 22 million comments were unique, right? Exactly. It's become this meme on the internet to uh, promote the B-movie, which is an animated (laughs) film. Some of the comments included excerpts from the script, references to the film, synopses. So a kind of denial of service attack on the public comment space. Exactly. That's an excellent way to put it. Researchers have found about 1 million associated with a very specific pattern. It's called natural language. Generation. So if you can imagine, if you ever played the game Mad Libs, you have a series of buckets, and those buckets are filled with words and phrases that are all synonymous or related. So you choose one word or phrase from each of those buckets, string them together, and you create a new comment. They found about 1 million of them that followed this pattern. There were 22 million comments submitted. So obviously, that's more automated content than you would want to see, and it is problematic. But the vast majority still seem to have been form letters the advocacy group sent in. Okay, so I'd like to, to the extent that we can, figure out who did what. We know that the Electronic Frontier Foundation, a group that strongly advocates for the preservation of net neutrality, had a form letter and lots of people used it to weigh in in favor of net neutrality. And we know that one comment that appeared 2.8 million times, so another form comment, came from a site that was supported by HBO's John Oliver. These letters, I assume, did represent real people. In the case of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, the EFF, their letter got picked up by researchers because the EFF was actually prompting its community to write in, but it would give every person a slightly different message. So Mm -hmm. that caught researchers' eye because they were saying, look, this technology isn't just being used by the bad guys who are trying to scheme the system. It's also being used by well-meaning advocacy groups that just want to give everybody a little bit of a unique voice. I guess my feeling is that if it's real people, what's the difference between a form letter and uh, natural language generation? The problem is if it isn't a real person— Researchers found that many of the comments sent to the FCC from anti-net neutrality groups came with names and addresses from real people, but without their knowledge. They were basically stolen. Is that true? Yes. Researchers found that those one million comments that they identified that fit this very specific pattern were associated with real names, real email addresses, and that 
led them to believe that these were taken from some sort of hack of personally identifiable information. Think about all of the hacks that we've had recently from Equifax to name the retailer. And you find even celebrities. John Oliver's name was used (laughs) thousands of times. Lots of comments were submitted not even using names. There were thousands submitted under the name The Internet. There were some names that were just strings of numbers. So the alarm has been sounded. It's fairly clear that the comment process has run off the rails. How has the FCC responded? They really haven't so far. I mean, I think it's important to say that you can't really vet 22 million comments as a human being. You're going to need the assistance of technology to siphon some of those out. Now, as I said, this situation is helped by the fact that only 6% of those comments are unique. Still, that's over a million people. Exactly. And often what you have is the FCC, and this goes back generations, they will pay most attention to the comments that come in from recognized groups. So in this case, it might be Verizon or AT&T. They'll pay attention to comments that come in from an established academic at Stanford or from a general counsel at a business who's making a legal argument. So in a lot of cases, and the public doesn't like to hear this, these individual voices who have something to say get drowned out. They don't get drowned out. They get ignored, brushed aside. Exactly. The last net neutrality period, there was this groundswell of activism from pro-net neutrality people. And when there is a groundswell, that's when the FCC starts to pay attention. But it's unclear whether Chairman Pai really has the motivation to weigh the groundswell that was coming in from the pro-net neutrality group against the the groundswell of comments coming in from anti-net neutrality groups and to decide which comments among them were real and which were not. So if there are enough fakes and bots to muddy the waters and to enable the FCC to simply walk away from the processes hopelessly polluted, even a groundswell can be ignored. Does that worry you? Absolutely, it worries me, because when you do have 2.8 million comments coming in from pro-net neutrality groups, but you also have millions of comments coming in from anti-net neutrality groups, some of which have been identified as being fake, it creates the perfect storm for this FCC, if they want to, to say, we don't know which among those pro-net neutrality comments were fake and which Mm -hmm. were real. And I think we're seeing this really throughout open platforms on the internet, People you're following on Twitter, now it's very unclear whether they're real people. You know, we found that a number of them were exposed as Russian bots and people were really believing them during the election. And so I think that this whole new world that we've entered into of what's real and what's fake on the Internet has now infiltrated our government rulemaking process. And that's really scary. Issy, thank you very much. Thank you. Issy Lepowski is a senior writer for Wired. You can read her article, How Bots Broke the FCC's Public Comment System, on Wired.com. Coming up, a history of hoaxes traces a direct line from Phineas T. Barnum to Donald J. Trump. This is On the Media. This is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. And I'm Brooke Gladstone. To conclude, we end as we began, with the cataloging and codification of Flim Flam. According to Kevin Young, author of 
Bunk, The Rise of Hoaxes, Humbug, Plagiarists, Phonies, Post-Facts, and Fake News, the hoax has long been America's way to confront while still avoiding our conflicts and fears, insecurities and divisions that have plagued us since our birth. Kevin, thanks for doing this. Thank you. You wrote that if Victorian England were the age of equipoise, then 19th century America was the age of imposture, hypocrisy. What made America more hypocritical than England? Well, I think in regards to the hoax, a lot of it had to do with slavery. In the Penny Press, the place where a lot of these hoaxes circulated starting in the 1830s, papers had been a nickel and then they were a penny, they needed content. And hoaxes provided a way for people to work out some of these questions of freedom and slavery, but they often weren't addressing slavery. They often were thinking about freedom as if everyone were free, and they weren't. So while in the 18th century, England had, you know, Shakespeare fakes, the U.S. had the moon hoax. Yeah, the moon hoax is a fascinating hoax. Happened in 1835 when a man named Richard Adams Locke wrote anonymously these stories about seeing life on the moon. How did it speak to beliefs that were rife in the nation? These figures he describes were, in a way, displacing some of the questions that we were having. The man bats are described in ways that black figures are described, ideas like woolly hair and things like that. There were biped beavers on the moon. People on Earth had reactions to these figures. One group offered to send Bibles to the moon to Christianize these figures. And what was brilliant about the moon hoax is it started in a sort of pseudoscientific way. And, of course, race, too, is a sort of pseudoscientific idea that gets more and more entrenched as the century goes on. There was also an idea at the time of how these figures on the moon actually were signs of order in the universe. I think it's very clear once you start thinking of it allegorically that that was one part of its appeal. In other words, there were beings that were clearly of a higher order than other beings. Yeah, I think the hoax at this time had people thinking about who belonged and who didn't. It wasn't simply that they believed all of it, but it was a kind of fakery that led to questions that later P.T. Barnum would play with about, you too can be an expert. You too get to decide in this new nation who belongs and who doesn't. Now that seems to echo our present, doesn't it? The sense that experts can be easily cast aside and everyone can decide what the laws of physics are. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I very much was thinking about the ways that the penny press kind of served a little like the internet Mm -hmm. and that the internet itself provides this place where we get to decide, we get to like, you know, we get to repost things. One thing, though, I would say is different is I think the audiences were very sophisticated then. And I almost think that to their credit, there was this idea that that everyone could be an expert, which is very different than now where no one is an expert. What's the difference between everybody being an expert and no one being an expert? I think one is this uh, democratic principle that you can argue over. And now there's this idea that there are no people who can say for sure what is happening. 
Barnum used fake doctors to authenticate things. This isn't that much better, but at least there were doctors. (laughs) (laughs) And now I think that would be to your discredit to be an expert, to be a scientist talking about climate change, for instance, gives you no more standing than someone who's like, it doesn't seem that warm to me today, so therefore there is no global warming. So P.T. Barnum, what did he represent the average 19th century American? The American art of reinvention. He made it big and went bust a number of times. He was a showman in an age of showmen. He really invented that idea. He helped us invent the modern idea of the circus and also the modern idea of the museum. He had a thing called the American Museum, and that's where a lot of his exhibitions happened. And it wasn't a museum how we think of it. It was more like a kind of Vegasy show palace all in one where you could see high art and then you could also see the bearded lady. And I think his brilliance was to make those things the same kind of experience. Yeah, because Barnum drew a distinction between humbug, which he said was showmanship, and lying, deceit. Yeah, I think for Barnum, Humbug required at least a good show. One of my favorite quotes is where he said, every crowd has a silver lining. (laughs) Um, He very much was interested in the ways that, as a group, we might be fooled. He'd leave your pockets a little lighter, but also, you know, you feeling a little bit fuller. He would show figures like Joyce Heth, which was his first big exhibition, and, and hoax. This woman he claimed was... George Washington's nursemaid, which would have made her 161 years old. (laughs) He advertised this very fact, 161 years old, come see her. There were debates in the press over whether she was real at all, was she made of rubber or an automaton. And then we step back and think, well, she was also a black woman that Barnum possibly enslaved. She had been a slave before. And then when she died, Barnum charged admission to her autopsy to see whether or not she was 161, which he well knew she wasn't. So there was a dehumanization of of Joyce Heth. On the other hand, I was reading a lot about her because of your book. You know, it isn't altogether clear if she was... In on it, she did make money. Some say that she actually bought the plantation that she had been once enslaved on, or this may be part of her myth. So many stories, some in which he seemed like a horrible monster. In others, she's his accomplice in in hoaxing the public. and, And you're left more confused than where you began. That sounds like Barnum to me. One of his other really important exhibitions is in 1860. It was, What is It? And that exhibition was of a black man who he asked us to wonder about whether that person was the missing link. It's a small thing, but in my research, I realized that the it was capitalized and the is was not. On the eve of the Civil War, and there you have this black man viewed as an it. And that questioning is Barnum's troubling genius. These two examples, they're obviously predicated on racism, but Tom Thumb was also a stupendously popular Barnum find. And around the same time Barnum was showing the What Is It exhibit, he was also arguing for the abolition of slavery and suffrage for black men. How do you square these two depictions of Barnum, which seem so at odds with each other? Well, I think it goes back to the contradictions that are part of our founding. Those kind of questions are ones the hoax makes use of, plays with. 
I started to think about the ways the hoax was almost always about race, and then the ways that race itself can be a kind of hoax. People who often were called freaks helped us think about that. Who are we? How are we made? You know, we should note there were people, often white, who pretended to be the other. And that kind Mm -hmm. of use of blackface, I think, is really important in the book, too, because it emerges almost exactly at the same time in the mid-1830s as the Penny Press, as Barnum, not accidentally. And I trace that tradition of sort of pretending to be what you're not through time till now. I think there's a lot of continuity between our time, say a reality show. We know when we see a reality show, it's not totally real. Mm -hmm. We take pleasure in it, at least I do. I like some reality shows a lot. (laughs) But at the same time, they're very much playing with some of these deep questions, uh, race, gender. And I think in the case of the hoax more broadly, they also play with questions of life and death and freedom and its opposite. You said that there seemed to be something especially American about the hoax, and that flim-flammery is as American as jazz. Well, the very term con man is an American invention. (laughs) And (laughs) while I don't think that America invented the hoax, I think in many ways they perfected it. You wrote that the hoax and the conspiracy share an equally elaborate dance, the former accusing the world not only of hoaxing but also of covering it up, the hoax instead offering advocacy. So can you point to some major hoaxes of our time? I mean, I think birtherism is a big one. Uh, It goes right to the heart of origin and Americanness and race. I mean, Rachel Dolezal, I think, is a good one. A civil rights leader accused of faking her black identity is now reacting with defiance against allegations of violating ethics rules. Rachel Dolezal stepped down this week as leader of her NAACP chapter in Spokane, Washington. Her parents I tried to understand why couldn't you just identify in a non-taking-over way? Like, why couldn't you just say, I'm an ally? That's one of the problems with that, is it really falls into a long line of blackface. Mm -hmm. But I also think there's something more nefarious, which is that they see blackness as a kind of trauma. There's often not a lot of joy in these hoaxes that plagiarize other people's pain. Is that what you meant when you said once the hoax sought to praise, now it mostly traffics in pain? That is what I meant. When someone's pretending to be a gang member from South Central who isn't, or pretending to be native, they often are looking at the worst possible notion of the other person. Mm -hmm. And I I think that that's really its connection to Barnum, but also a kind of difference. It strikes me that this is the dark side of Barnum we're living in these days. Barnum without the optimism or without the confidence from which we get the phrase con man. I think that's well put. We're not even being asked to give our confidence. We're not even asked to believe some of the lies we're told, I think. And I think that's the troubling difference even between humbug and the hoax and between the hoax and BS, which doesn't even care if you believe it. Interesting that you mention reality TV because in order to enjoy that, you have to accept that a lot of what you're watching is cooked, isn't real. Right. If you take a reality show guy and you put him on a podium in real life and people bring that same tolerance for 
exaggeration and deception and manipulation to that forum, a lie becomes utterly normalized. I worry, and I say this aloud in the book, that we're headed toward a half-hoax world, one where things are just always a little bit fake. But then there's really the danger of everything is fake and also an idea that, well, we can't ever really know when I think we can. The arguing over what should be established facts becomes really strange and infectious. And it's not an accident that the press is being attacked worse than ever as a very idea when I don't think that was the case in Barnum's day. And that's, again, where I think the horror of the hoax has overtaken us. If there were a single idea in this half-hoax world that we live in now that you would hope that a reader would take away from bunk, your book, what would it be? I do think we need to be skeptical but not cynical because, oddly, the cynic is almost more vulnerable to the hoax. I think there's a quality of overestimation of oneself Do you think that Barnum would be a success today? I think I see Barnum a lot today. He had a real nose for what people wanted, even though they didn't know. Kevin, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Kevin Young is the director of the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture and author of Bunk, The Rise of Hoaxes, Humbug, Plagiarists, Phonies, Post Facts, and Fake News. That's it for this week's show. On the Media is produced by Alana Casanova-Burgess, Jesse Brenneman, Michael Lowinger, and Leah Fetter. We had more help from Monique Laborde, John Hanrahan, and Sarah Chadwick Gibson. Special thanks to Andy Lancet of WNYC's archives team. And our show was edited by Brooke. Our technical director is Jennifer Munson. Our engineers this week were Sam Baer and Terrence Bernardo. Also thanks to Corey Boutelier. Our WNYC colleague behind the documentary, Pete T. Barnum, The Lost Legend. Katya Rogers is our executive producer. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios. I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Bob Garfield. On the Media is supported by the Ford Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, and the listeners of WNYC Radio.